Good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to our class on the book of Hebrews. We will be continuing in chapter 10. And we're starting to get near to the end of the book, so looking forward to what we will be studying today. Um, how many of you were here in our Hebrews class last Sabbath? Um, about half of you or so. So we are in Hebrews chapter 10, and we also covered the end of Hebrews chapter 9 last week. And at the end of Hebrews chapter 9, we see that Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. We unpacked the meaning of that, that Christ was offered to bear our sins as our sacrifice, and that those who look for him, he's going to come back a second time, but he's coming back without sin. The reason why is he bore our sins as our Savior on the cross, but when he comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords in the clouds, he will have blotted out our sins when he was high priest. That's what Hebrews 9 is talking about. So he comes back without sin the second time. And then the first 13 verses of chapter 10 talks about how the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, but the blood of Jesus could, and it does. And we see that Jesus came to this earth, a body was prepared for him, and in chapter 10, verse 7, he says, I delight to do thy will, or he sa actually he says, I've come to do thy will, O God, and that's quoting Psalms 40, verse 8, which says, I delight to do thy will, yea, thy laws within my heart. So doing God's will is God's law written in your heart. Um, it's interesting as we get on into chapter 10, and we've already seen in chapter 8, that the new covenant is God's law written in our hearts. So Jesus lived a new covenant life in the body that was prepared for him here on this earth. Now, as we continued on, verse 9, it talks about how it says, He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. So Christ took away the first covenant so that he may establish the second covenant. And in Hebrews 9, or actually in Hebrews 8, we saw that he is the mediator of a better covenant. So the second covenant or the new covenant is a better covenant that Christ is the mediator of. And we see that Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Now, where we left off last week was this. Why is it that Jesus is seated on the right hand of God until his enemies are made his footstool? Because clearly we see that he offered himself as our sacrifice on the cross. After that, he sat down on the right hand of God until, or from henceforth, until his enemies are made his footstool. Or from this point forward until his enemies are made his footstool. So why is Jesus, after he's made a sacrifice for sins, he died on the cross, why does he still have enemies and why is he still seated? Now we studied this a little bit when we covered chapter one of the same book and you can see the concept um, in Hebrews chapter one verse 13 where 
it says, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So that concept is seen in Hebrews chapter one, but it comes back with more force here in Hebrews chapter 10. Jesus offers one sacrifice for sins forever. He sits down on the right hand of God from henceforth or from this time forward, expecting until his enemies are made his footstool. So let's define what Jesus is doing on the right hand of God. We've already talked about this in, in this class. Where else in the book of Hebrews does it talk about Jesus at the right hand of God? So Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Who is Jesus in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, on the right hand of God? He's our high priest. Paul says, now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So right hand of God, Jesus is high priest. Hebrews chapter 12 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus is high priest. Jesus is author and finisher of our faith. And in Hebrews chapter 10, he's our sacrifice or our savior who is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus is high priest, author and finisher of our faith, and our savior. All of those characteristics fit Christ as he's seated on the right hand of God. And again, why must he remain seated until his enemies be made his footstool if he already paid the price for sins on the cross? Wasn't the battle already finished? Everything's taken care of. Why does he still have enemies that have not been made his footstool? In the interest of time, we'll just go through this quickly. Um, 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> and you'll see the same concept here. First, this is the same author, Paul. Hebrews, Paul's the author. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 24, 1 Corinthians 15. So same author, Paul, describing the same concept here. Starting in verse 24, then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. So Christ is ruling with all authority and power on the right hand of God. But notice verse 25, it says, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Now remember Hebrews 10, it says he's seated on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Here it's enemies be put under his feet and he must reign or be seated at the right hand of God until those enemies are put under his feet. So what are these enemies that are causing Christ to be seated at the right hand of God? Verse 26 says, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So Christ must reign until death is destroyed. That's what Paul is saying. And the question is, when Jesus died, wasn't he also resurrected? So wasn't the power of death destroyed? And in fact, in Hebrews chapter two, the book that we're studying, it says that Christ destroyed him who is the devil that had the power of death. 
and delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So I'm a, it's like, okay, well, wait a minute here. Christ must be seated till his enemies are made his footstool, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Christ will be seated at the right hand of God till death is destroyed, but yet Christ on the cross destroyed the power of the devil who has the power over death. So why do we still have death? And the answer, which is pretty straightforward, you go back to 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 55. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55 says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Now notice what verse 56 says. The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. So we also know from Romans 6.23, it says the wages of sin is death. If there's no sin, there's no death. Now, Christ must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet or his enemies are made his footstool. And you may say, well, Christ died for our sins on the cross so hasn't sin been taken care of at the cross, so why is he still seated at the right hand of God if sin and death are still a problem? He died on the cross and took care of our sins, right? Well, <clears throat> let's put Hebrews together as a complete package to understand why sin and death remain and why Christ is still at the right hand of God. So what, are, what is Christ doing at the right hand of God? Well, the way you know what he's doing at the right hand of God is based on his titles or his descriptions. And we've talked about that. And I've spent a lot of time on these points because I believe that if we understand the characteristics of Christ and what he is doing, we will understand what Christ's purpose is for our lives if we know what he's doing. So what's Christ doing on the right hand of God? Well, he's seated until his enemies are made his footstool. Well, don't you think that if Christ has enemies that must be put under his feet, that he would be at war with those enemies? I mean, if you have enemies in a human sense, you're at war with those enemies. I mean, look at... Um, you know, the U.S. and the war on terror, we go to Iraq, you know, whatever your views are about that war, you could say that we had an enemy that we went to go fight. That's a straightforward illustration. Christ has enemies that must be destroyed, and he's seated at the right hand of God, so that's where he is waging the battle. That's where he's going to wage the battle to destroy the last enemies. And what are the last enemies? Death, which is caused by sin. So Christ is waging the battle against sin and death from the right hand of God. And based on his descriptive titles, we see how he is going to win this battle. First of all, he's high priest seated at the right hand of God in chapter 8. Chapter 10, he's our sacrifice for sins. So if he, if he didn't make a sacrifice, our sins could not be taken away. So he's our sacrifice. He's also our high priest. And then Hebrews chapter 12, while he's at the right hand of the throne of God, he's the author and the finisher of our faith. So Christ as high priest, as sacrifice, and as author and finisher of our faith. Those three characteristics show how he is waging the battle against sin and death. 
And when Christ wins the battle, he will no longer stay seated. Now, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Where is that in heaven? That's the throne of God next to the right hand of the throne of God. He's at the throne of God, and we understand, according to prophecy, that the throne went from the holy place to the most holy place on October 22, 1844. That's pretty clear. We've already discussed that. So Christ seated at the right hand of God in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary at the throne of God, working as our high priest, as our sacrifice, and as the author and finisher of our faith. And it's interesting... In Daniel chapter 7, we see a description of the beginning of the judgment in the throne room of God. Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. And here the Bible reads, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit. The Ancient of Days is the Father, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. Of course, we're not doing a Daniel study here, but this shows that the throne is movable. It has wheels. It's switching apartments. Verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were open. Now, some translations read the court was seated, and the books were open. So, in the judgment, the Ancient of Days did sit, and the court was seated, and then you see in verse 13 and 14 that the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, and then he is seated, and of course Hebrews tells us that, that he's seated on the right hand of God till his enemies be made his footstool. So during the time of judgment, while the Father and the Son are seated, that will be the time when God's enemies are destroyed, which is sin and death. So Christ, as our sacrifice, takes his blood to heaven, first into the holy place, then into the most holy place, and it's in the judgment that he will take his blood and blot out our sin. That's his role as sacrifice. It's also his role as our high priest. And as our high priest in Hebrews chapter 8, we see that he writes his law into our hearts and minds. And he remembers our sins no more. If he remembers our sins no more, we've talked about this, that means there's no more record of sin because he's blotted them out. That takes place in the judgment. The only way, though, for him to be able to blot our sins out, to write his law into our hearts and minds, is for him also to function as the author and the finisher of our faith, where he gets us to run the same race that he ran. He's the forerunner in Hebrews chapter 6. He's the author and finisher of our faith in Hebrews chapter 12. And so we get to the end of that race, and we finish the same race that Jesus has, and we see that when we're called to run that race, we lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. We look to Jesus, and when we get to the end of that race, we have the faith of Jesus, and we run with patience. So we have patience, faith of Jesus, and God's laws written in our hearts and minds. Through those mechanisms, having patience, Jesus as author and finisher of our faith helps us to have that. Finishing the race so that we can have the faith of Jesus. Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith on the right hand of God helps us to do that. 
Having God's law written in our hearts and minds and our sins blotted out, that's the work of our new covenant high priest, Jesus. All of those things about Jesus. Now, think about this. Remember, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, and that's where he wages the battle against the last enemies that he's trying to destroy, sin and death. So if Jesus, as high priest, author and finisher of our faith and sacrifice, is able to write his law into our hearts and minds, blot out our sins, get us to finish the race so that we have patience and the faith of Jesus at the end of the day and that we've laid aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, then Jesus can say, look, I've blotted out the record of their sin. If there's no more record of sin in the judgment, in the courts in heaven, can we die? According to the Bible, it says this, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But Satan has a problem now, because he says these people have sinned, therefore they die. And God says, okay, let's, let's take up that argument and let's go down the line here, okay? Let's judge these people according to God's law. Okay, that's taken care of. I've written my law into their hearts and minds. So my law is in their heart. And he says, well, wait, but, but they've sinned. And Jesus says, well, let's look at the record books. Oh, wait, um, my blood has blotted out their sins, so there's no record here. What are you talking about? And um, Satan says, well, but they, they were sinners. You can't take them to heaven. And Jesus says, well, actually, let's look at the record of their life here. See how these people lived? They looked to me as their sacrifice, high priest, and author and finisher of their faith. So they actually laid aside every sin and every weight that beset them, and they ran the same race that I ran, and they got to the same finishing point that I got to. So yeah, maybe they had a record of sin in the past, but I took that record away. It's not there anymore. Amen. And they've lived my life. So that's it, Satan. Game over. And then instead of the courts being seated, where Christ is seated till his enemies be made his footstool, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it says, At that time shall Michael stand up the great prince who standeth for the children of thy people. So Michael stands up for those for whom he has died, for those for whom he has blotted out their sins, for those for whom he has been the author and finisher of their faith. That's the people that Michael stands up for. And when he stands up, there's no more enemies. The, the last enemies have been destroyed. There's no more death because there's no more sin. And there's no more sin because Christ died for our sins. And then when the, his blood, he blots out the sins of those who are faithful. So a beautiful message. There's, it's interesting in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. And I, I meant to talk about this in the Romans class that we just finished. And then I... Um, forgot to say this, but it's interesting. In Romans 8, it talks about how the carnal mind is at enmity with God, and yet the first promise of the gospel is, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, so that God is promising that through my power, my seed through the woman will be at enmity with the devil. And yet Romans is telling us that the carnal mind, which is the Roman seven man who does the good he doesn't, he, who doesn't do what he wants to do and doesn't do what he wants to do, he is carnal, sold under sin, and yet 
God has a group of people who walk after the Spirit, who are at enmity with the devil. And when you get to Romans 16, 20, we see that these people, in verse 20, it says, The God of peace, Romans 16, 20, The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. So when we are at enmity with the devil, God working through us will bruise the head of the serpent under our feet. Of course, it's Christ working in us. And ultimately, it will be Christ who stamps the head of the serpent. Um, he did so on the cross, but he ultimately does so through his people who finish the same race that he ran. Because Christ has to sit until sin and death are destroyed. And sin and death are destroyed in the judgment when God has a group of people that have run the same race that he has ran. So in Hebrews 10 verse 13, there's a lot there when it says, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. And I like the word expecting because Christ knows it's going to happen some, at some point. He's expecting it. But he is waiting for that to happen. So we'll continue on here now. We spent all our time so far on that one verse. We'll keep going now. Verse 14, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And the word perfect here in Hebrews 10, 11, and 12 describes those whose sins are blotted out. So those who are sanctified will be perfected by the blotting out of God's, by the blood of Christ. Verse 15, this is getting into the new covenant again. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, Verse 16, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. And in their minds will I write them, oh, I'm sorry, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So notice this. The new covenant is God putting his law into our hearts and minds. He writes them into our hearts and minds. And then verse 17, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So he, at the same time that he, when he blots out our sins, at that same time, he writes his law into our hearts and minds. So we are a new covenant people with his law written into our hearts and minds. And of course, this is a powerful argument to show that God's law has never been done away with. If the new covenant people are going to have his law written into their hearts and minds, then how could you say the law was nailed to the cross? I mean, that's just an unbelievable argument that goes against the clear teaching of Scripture. And at the same time that God's law is written into our hearts and minds, he remembers our sins and iniquities no more because he's blotted out our sins. So we have God's law in our hearts and minds, and there's no more record of our sins. And it's at that time that Michael can stand up. Continuing on, verse 18. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And we remember earlier in Hebrews 4 where it says, let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Because of the blood of Jesus, we can come boldly to the throne of grace, and we can be thankful for that. And I like verse 20. It says, so we... 
we come with boldness into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. How do we come in? By a new and living way. So what's this new and living way? Which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. So how do we come to Jesus? With boldness. How with boldness? Well, by a new and living way. Well, what's that new and living way? Well, it's the way that Christ consecrated for us. Well, how did he consecrate it for us? Through his flesh. And what did he do in his flesh? He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace. You see how that connects from Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 10? Jesus was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. And in Hebrews 10, it's like, hey, let's come with boldness, enter with, bowling, with boldness, with holiness, sorry, um, by a new and living way that's been consecrated by the flesh of Christ. And because Christ consecrated that way with his flesh, that tells us that we can walk the same way because he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. So then we come the same way with the same flesh. And we do so with boldness. I like that. So verse 20 is very powerful. Verse 21, And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So full assurance of faith. We do have assurance in the faith we have in Christ because we know who he is. He's our high priest. He's our sacrifice. He's the author and finisher of our faith. We have assurance in Christ. Christ. And when we do so, we have our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, so our life is cleaned up and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promise. So God is calling for a group of people at this time in earth's history to hold fast to the profession of our faith. Now is not the time to start having doubts about God's word, who he is, if he's really our high priest in heaven, if 1844 really means anything. Now is the time to hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And we can be thankful that God is faithful. And I like verse 24 also, it says, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. And that's an interesting concept, provoking one another to love and good works. I mean, when you think of provoking one another, you think about provoking someone to wrath, um, to anger, you name it. But Paul is saying, look, as God's people, we should provoke each other to love each other and to do good works. That's part of being God's people. So I like that. So when you think about provoking someone, yes, be a biblical provoker. Provoke people to love and good works, not to, to wrath and anger. In verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So as we see the day approaching of Christ coming in the clouds of heaven, now is not the time to start skipping church and say, you know, I'll just spend time with God at home and maybe I'll just listen to audio verse today and I don't really feel like showing up. It's like, look, we need to assemble ourselves together. It's like, well, what am I going to do if I... Um, 
assemble with the believers. I mean, I already know the truth anyway. Well, let's do what the Bible says, provoke one another to love and good works. You might come to church and see people who are just kind of floating along and doing nothing for God. And what we do when we come and assemble together is to provoke one another to love and good works. We encourage each other. We help each other. And we're not just sitting in the back pew listening to a sermon and walking out. No, we assemble together and we encourage each other. That's the purpose of assembling together as we see Jesus coming in the clouds. And we need each other at this time in our history. There's so much going on around us. We need to assemble together with faithful believers who believe in every word of the Bible and every word of the spirit of prophecy. That is what God needs more than ever at this time. Verse 26, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. And you know, Paul's already given this message earlier in the book. He talks about the children of Israel, they hear God speak from Mount Sinai, and yet... They, all, they, they continually erred. They did not enter into God's rest. And God was, was grieved with that generation. And the point is to us, look, we know the truth of Scripture. We know what the truth of the Bible is. And if we choose to go against that at this point, look, God is merciful, God is faithful, God is loving. But if we choose to go against Him, there's no more sacrifice for sins. The blood of Jesus will not cover a life that's willfully sinning. That's just the straightforward teaching of Scripture. And there's no getting around it. You can't say, well, I'll just, I'll accept Christ, but I'll keep sinning. No, if we sin willfully after we've received a knowledge of the truth, there's no more sacrifice for sins. Jesus died for us, absolutely. But he also... In addition to being our sacrifice, he's our high priest, he's the author and finisher of our faith. So yes, he gives us forgiveness, but he also wants to write his law into our hearts and minds so that we can have a new covenant experience. And so if we say, you know what, that's nice that Jesus died for me, but I'm going to keep sinning. He's not going to write his law into your heart and mind. And if he doesn't write his law into your heart and mind, he's not going to cover you with his blood in the judgment. So there is justice and mercy mixed together here in the Bible, as there always is. Verse 28, continuing on, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Now think about this here. You know, the children of Israel during the time of Moses, they lived before Jesus died on the cross. And what Paul is saying is, look, you know, they were punished pretty severely, but how much worse do you think the punishment will be for us when we live after Jesus died for us on the cross? We live in the time after the cross. We've seen what Jesus has done for us. So there's especially no excuse when we see the blood of Christ and what he's done for us. Verse 30, for we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. And here is the clear concept of a judgment of the wrath of God that will be poured out to those who trod underfoot the Son of God, count the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So he's just imploring God's people, hey, 
Don't go against God. You know what Jesus has done for us. He died for us. Don't go against the blood of the covenant. Jesus has done too much for us. Verse 32, and he's speaking here to the Hebrews primarily just before the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, but call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of affliction. So those who received Pentecost, that's when they were illuminated. After that, they faced persecution. This was the great fight of affliction. And God's people in the last days who received the outpouring of the latter rain can expect nothing less than what those who received Pentecost received a great fight of afflictions. So when we go through that experience, call the former days when we were illuminated. Verse 33, partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used, for ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. How many of you would take joyfully the spoiling of your goods? Like if you lost everything, if your house was taken away, your car, all of the assets that you had in this life, would you still be like, praise the Lord, because in heaven I have a better and enduring substance. Those who received the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they loved Jesus so much that they took joyfully the spoiling of their goods. Not to say that it, did, it didn't hurt, but they still had in mind, hey, I have in heaven a better and enduring substance. And then I really like verses 35 through 39. This is where we're going to finish up today. He says, Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. What's the promise? For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. That's the second coming. Now, let's understand verse 35 or 36. So, you have need of patience. Where else are we called to have patience in the book of Hebrews? Hebrews 12. Run with patience the race that's been set before us. Lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. So, when we have patience, we lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And then it says that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. What is the will of God in the context of Hebrews chapter 10? Well, if you look in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9, or verse 7, actually, it says, Jesus says, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. He's, and that's quoting from Psalms chapter 40, verse 8. So look, Jesus did the will of God, and God's people waiting for the second coming with patience do the will of God. Now, what's the will of God? According to Psalms 40, verse 8, Jesus says, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. So what did Jesus do when he did the will of God? He kept God's law in his heart. Now this is interesting. What's the new covenant? It's God's law written in our hearts and minds. So what are God's people who are waiting for the second coming, who are doing the will of God doing? They have God's law written in their hearts and minds. They have a new covenant experience. So the promise is, ye have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, or after God's law has been written in your heart and mind, you, sh you might receive the promise. What's the promise? For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now notice verse 38, it says, Now the just shall live by faith. Who are the just? The just are those who are doing the will of God. 
What's the will of God? It's God's law, his new covenant, written into your heart and mind. So who is a just person? Someone who has God's law, which is his righteousness, written in their hearts. So justification is not just an outward covering, it's an inward righteousness as well. The just live by faith with God's law written in their hearts and minds, exercising patience as they wait for the coming of God. And it's interesting, this passage also has uh, an application and a fulfillment in the Millerite movement that um, it comes from Habakkuk chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 talks about how the vision will tarry but wait for it. It will surely come and it will not tarry. And it says the just shall live by his faith. And the Millerites were people who had the experience of justification by faith, waiting for the coming of the Lord. They are a representation of the type of people God will have at the end of the world just before he comes the second time. A group of people who know that Jesus is coming, they are just, they live by faith, they're doing the will of God, they have God's law written in their hearts and minds. So verse 38, now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So when we are just living by faith, we don't draw back. We don't say, well, you know, Christ has consecrated a new and living way for us to follow. He's the forerunner with his flesh. He's demonstrated for us how to live this life. Yes, he's the author and finisher of our faith, but, you know, um, I'm tired of this pathway. Um, I'm going to go back and live in the world. And Paul is very clear, if we do that, there's no more sacrifice for sin. And he's saying, we're not like that, though, if we're just living by faith, having patience. We believe to the saving of the soul. And Abraham shows us what it means to believe in the book of Romans. He believed in God as creator. He was fully persuaded that because God was creator and could do what he said, that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And so as we believe to the saving of the soul, we also believe that Jesus has promised, he's faithful who has promised, that he will write his law into our hearts and minds, that he will help us to lay aside every weight in the sin which doth so easily beset us. We believe that we can be raised to walk in newness of life. And because of that, we are saved. We believe to the saving of the soul. And it, it points us back to Hebrews 9, verse 28, that says, Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So when Jesus comes back the second time, that's the promise. What does he come back with? Well, he comes back without sin, because he's blotted out our sins, and he comes back with salvation. And so that's what we have to look forward to as we live here on this earth, waiting for Jesus to come. So how do we live while we're waiting for Jesus to come? We have patience. What does that mean? That means that we lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And we do the will of God. What does that mean? That means we allow for God to write his law into our hearts and minds. And we, as we have God's law written in our hearts and minds, we can run that race that's been set before us with patience, and it allows us to get to the same finishing point as Jesus does. And remember, Jesus is seated until his enemies are made his footstool. 
But when he writes his law into our hearts and minds, when he has a group of people who wait with patience, who allow, who do the will of God, who have God's law written into their hearts and minds, then he can blot out our sins. And when he does that, then he can come back the second time because he's destroyed the last enemies that he's contending with, which is sin and death. So my challenge to each one of us today is let's not cast away our confidence. Let's have patience. Let's do the will of God so that we can receive the promise because we know that Jesus will come in a little while. And while we are waiting, let's exercise faith and have justification by faith. Let's not draw back, but let's believe to the saving of the soul. Because those are the people that Jesus wants to come back for. Those that believe to the saving of the soul. So when you think about Jesus in heaven as your high priest, just remember, he's seated until his enemies are made his footstool. And part of that is dependent on us allowing him to write his law into our hearts and minds so that he can blot out our sins. If we say, you know what, I'm just going to keep living here on this earth for myself, he might have to keep waiting for a while and stay seated for a while. But be careful. Don't say in your heart, well, hey, I can delay the coming of Jesus and just live a life of sin and sort of profess to serve Christ because there's going to come a day when there will be a group of people whether or not we're part of it. And it just might be at the time in your heart that you say, my Lord delayeth his coming. And at that moment, it just might be that the angel of record and the Lord of heaven says, weighed in the balances and found wanting. We don't want to have that experience. We want to keep looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, so that we will be ready when he comes. Thank you, everyone.